Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. Glad to have you here. We are a Bible-based church out of Ontario, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people far from Christ and help them become devoted followers of Jesus. All right, buckle up for this one, people. In this message, we're going to be reminded that God will judge each and every person. That includes you and me. Kind of a scary thought if you think about it. And not only that, God will save those who humbly put their faith and trust in Christ, which also is you and I. Let's dive in as Pastor Nate continues part four in the study of Second Peter. Great to see you uh, all here today. If you, if you haven't been with us, let me just uh, give you a little bit of uh, a glimpse into where we've been. Uh, over the past uh, three weeks, we have been walking verse by verse through the New Testament letter of Second Peter. And one of the things I've been encouraging all of you to do, if you're willing and able to do this, is to be reading Second Peter. It's, I mean, you can read it through once a week, and by the end of the series, you know, six, seven weeks in, you'll, you'll have a good grasp of all of the things that are in there, and you'll get more out of the messages, especially today. We're going to be diving into some, some more difficult texts and some more ambiguous stuff, and so if you've already familiarized yourself with it, you'll get more out of it, I assure you. So I want to encourage you to do that, be reading it. Uh, taking notes in the margin of your Bible or in a notebook, uh, we really do want to become students of the Word. So I'm not going to go all the way back and recap everything we've talked about for three weeks. Uh, I'll tell you this, that uh, in the first couple of weeks, we talked about, uh, Peter talks about what it means to, to be a Christian, that it is not just a belief system, but it's also actions, and he talks about all of that. Uh, if you want to hear those messages, you can find them on our YouTube page, you can find them on our website and all those places. Uh, but what I do want to do is just spend a moment recapping what we talked about last Sunday, and that's because we're continuing the second chapter, and it's the same theme. And so what we learned about last week rolls into this week specifically. And so last week we talked about how there will be, Peter starts in verse 1 of chapter 2 by saying, there, will be, there were false prophets at the time of the prophets of old, like Moses and Elijah, and all of that time there were always false prophets that arose at the same time. And he says the same is true now in the first century as he's writing it, and the same is true now in the, in the 21st century. Wherever God's truth is being told, there'll be lies. Wherever someone is leading people to Christ, there'll be someone trying to deceive and trick people and gain an advantage and doing things out of greed. So those two will always exist. That's the point that Peter makes. And so we learned last week that one of our primary responsibilities as followers of Jesus is that we must learn to discern. Can we say that together? Learn to discern. We have to learn to identify error. We have to learn to identify what is true and what is false so that when someone comes and twists the truth, when someone comes and says, God said, you know, I've heard so many times, um, you know, some well-meaning guy who thinks he's being led by the Spirit will walk up to some young lady and be like, the Lord told me you're going to be my wife. And if you're a young lady and some guy says that to you, you better say, well, God didn't tell me, so hit it. Hit it, okay? Just because somebody says God says something, doesn't, we should not receive that at face value. Somebody can say, well, I found something new in the Bible, but it contradicts everything else the Bible teaches. Like, no, 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 you're, the problem is with you. You're, you're not, so we have to learn to discern. And I'm telling you, you will never be able to learn to discern truth without knowing what is in here, without knowing what God has said. I, I would say this, that we learned in Deuteronomy 13 last week, that even if a prophet showed up doing miracles and saying, this is what God says, if it contradicts what God has said, if it steers you away from Jesus, don't listen. Don't listen. So we have to be able to discern. We have to be able to discern. So he's encouraging the church 
This whole chapter 2, he's just describing false teachers. And he's describing how their motives are bad, and they're deceiving, and they're greedy, and they're lustful, and they're doing all these things. And he's like, be careful, be careful, be warned, be warned. Last week we learned that Jesus said that there will be false teachers among you. And Jesus himself said that they will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So they'll look like Christians, they'll look like they're on your team, they'll look like they got your back, but they're there for their own motives and purpose, and ultimately it will lead to destruction. And so Jesus doesn't say, find them, take them out. He says, be careful, be warned, be on guard, discern. That's our job. Each one of us has to discern what is true, what is right. We must protect our hearts. We must continue to follow God, ignore and reject lies, and follow Christ. That makes sense? So that's kind of where we were last week. So he describes all these false teachers. And then as we pick it up today, what we're going to find, and we'll read it in just a moment, is we're actually going to be entering into a theme. It's going to be everyone's favorite topic. And the theme is judgment. Yes. And that, so it's funny because we were singing about how great God is. We were singing about how much he loves us. And that's all true. His grace and his mercy towards us and how he's provided us, you know, heavenly blessings and eternity with him. And we love to sing about his gifts and we love to sing about all of the wonderful things he gives us. We don't often sing about his judgment. That God's coming and be, watch out. Like nobody likes to sing about that. But he is how great thou art. He is great in love and he's great in mercy, but he's also a great judge. And we must be reminded of that. And today, Peter's going to remind the church of that, but he's also going to remind them in the context of, of this. Now, here's the question that I think he's answering. Okay, He's writing this letter. And the question is this. Why doesn't God do something about the false prophets? So Peter's just said in the first verse, there will be false prophets. There were then, there will be now. And the question is, well, why are they even here? Like, why doesn't God take people with bad motives and just eliminate them? Right? Lightning from it. Well, part of the problem with that is if God took out everybody with bad motives, none of us would be here. So that, I think that's part of the secret here. Okay? But the question is, why does God allow evil people to live among good people? Why does God allow for things to happen in the world? And so you have good and evil and you have, you know, those who are for Christ and those who are, are trying to divide the church. And it's like, why does God allow all of that to exist together? That's the big question. And here's the question. Why doesn't he judge them? Why doesn't God judge these false prophets then and now? And the simple answer in the next three verses is this. He will. He will. And we should not forget it. He gives three examples from the ancient times, three examples from the scriptures, beginning in verse 4. We'll pick it up there. Um, And he says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He, this is referring to the, we believe this is referring to the uprising of Satan. We, you know, Lucifer, he was, we believe, an archangel, so a very high, like a general in God's angelic army. And this, he thought, I'm going to ascend to the throne of God. I'm going to be like God. And he, 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 he led a rebellion. And so God cast him out and chained him in this place. He actually uses the Greek word Tartarus, right? Which is where the Greek mythology and the chains and gloomy darkness, and he describes all that. In other words, God saw rebellion in Satan and judged him. <clears throat> and he goes on to say that there is a, he's in chains waiting for a final judgment, which you can read about in Revelation. Satan and all his fallen angels will be ultimately destroyed. God will. So there's this judgment process that began. He goes on in verse 5. He says, if he didn't spare the ancient world. Book of Genesis tells us that at the time of Noah, the, the, the sin was so great. People had become so wicked. God was going to d- destroy it all. But he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, his wife and his, his sons and their, daughter, and their wives. 
when he brought a flood upon the world. So he's like, the world was sinful and, and, and God brings judgment upon the whole world. He's showing a pattern here that God does always judge. Verse 6, he says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, extinction, making them an example of what will happen to the ungodly. So essentially what he's saying is like, let me give you three examples of how God always judges. And he does bring about judgment. So let me start with the bad news. Okay, The bad news is that God will judge the unrighteous. He will. And that's bad news, as I already stated, because all of us in ourselves, apart from Christ, are unrighteous. Which means there's a judgment coming for all of us, apart from his saving grace. But the people of Noah's day, they didn't believe judgment was coming. The people in Sodom and Gomorrah did not believe judgment was coming. They just kept going. They did exactly what they wanted, when they wanted, how they wanted. And they never thought for a moment that the day of judgment would finally come, but it came. And, and the reason why I think that many of us will be tempted to think along those same terms, like, God won't judge. This is not a big deal, right? I don't. And the reason why is because God's judgment, this is so important, God's judgment is often delayed. Noah was telling people to get right with God for nearly 100 years while he's building a boat. People probably came for miles to see this huge, because it's like, why are you building a boat when there's no water? They laughed at him, and he said, get right with God. God is bringing a judgment. Get right with God. Nah. They just thought, no, no, this will never happen. So God's judgment is often delayed, and we're going to see. I remember when I was in grade 7, okay? When I was in grade 7, I had moved in grade 6. I was in a Christian school, and in the Christian school, they had really tight rules. Big surprise. And uh, and as I was going through Christian school, the teachers would check on my work multiple times during the day, and I I really couldn't fall behind. They were on top of it. And so then I went into public school in grade 7, and I got in science class, and the teacher's like, here's an assignment, and it's due in six weeks or something. And it was a piece of paper. And I kind of looked over it. It said you have to basically plant a seed at home. And then like every week you have to like take notes on like measure the plant and and draw a picture of how it's grown and track your observations. And then you hand it in. It was like 30% of your grade or something. And I saw the paper and and everyone else was kind of stuffed in their bag. I went, I stuffed it in my bag. The next week, teacher asked the class, how's everybody doing on that assignment? And it came over like, Nathan, how are you doing that assignment? I'm like, I'm doing really good on that assignment. And the teacher's like, awesome. And he walks off and I'm like, what a sucker. I didn't do anything. He doesn't even notice. I would have gotten so much trouble in my last school. And so this goes on week after week after week. You guys know where the story's going. When finally the day comes. And by the way, friends, there's a day coming. <laughs> the day comes. And the teacher says, okay, let's hand in those assignments. And everyone in my class pulled out a little duotang. Remember those? The little, little pins? They pull out the duotang, and in there they got their little drawings of their leafy plants and all this kind of stuff. And they're all handed. And I, I look around, and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't get away with anything. I am in big trouble. <laughs> there are going to be millions of people. When the day of judgment comes, and we stand before God, and he says, let me, let me see what you've done. And we're going to be like, it's too late. It's too late. We think we're getting away with stuff, but the truth of the matter is we get away with nothing. This is the truth. God sees everything. It's a scary truth. There are no secrets from him. He sees it all and will be held to account. Aren't you, turn to somebody and say, God's judgment is coming. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> okay, let's just, just lighten the mood. Everything. Breathe, breathe. Okay, we're going somewhere. 
The truth is that no one, absolutely no one, gets away with anything. Now you might say, well, Nathan, what about, what about, because everyone's always got the what about, right? What about the person who, like, murdered somebody and never got caught, and they lived out the rest of their life, like, normal? Like, they got away with it? It's like, really? Or, or what about warlords, you know, who devastate communities, but they, they're untouchable, or government officials who get away with all this atrocity, and they're above the law? Like, they got away with it, and the truth of the matter is, nobody gets away with anything in the end, because there is a righteous judge who sits on a throne, and one day... Every single one of us will be held to account. We'll stand before, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. The books are going to be opened, okay? And in that moment, all will be revealed. So that should be both terrifying and wake us up, okay? When I was a teenager, my parents made my brothers and I memorize a passage of scripture. Now, I've never met anybody in my life who's had this passage as their life verse. Never met somebody with a tattoo of Hebrews 9.27 on their body, okay? Here's what it says. This is what my parents made us learn. (laughs) And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's like, this passage tells us that there is an expiry date on every one of our lives. It might be 30 or 40 years from now. I hope so. It might be three weeks from now. We have no idea. But here's what I do know. Mortality, 100%. Everyone. Nobody lives forever. And, and what the scripture tells us is that not only is our life short, not only is the end of our life out of our hands, but at the time that our life ends, we will then stand before God in, in judgment, which is terrifying, which should change the way we live while in the days that we have, shouldn't it? After that comes the judgment. This means that hidden sins don't stay hidden forever. Toxic behavior. You can manipulate people, but God sees it all and will stand in judgment. So all of this causes us to reflect on ourselves and and cause us to want to to move in his direction and to become righteous. So that's the bad news. The bad news, God will judge. Okay, When we we leave this earth, we will stand in judgment before God. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Anybody ready for some good news? Okay, nice. I got a few people that want some good news. Here it is. That God will judge... The unrighteous, but he will save the righteous. And in these same stories that we just read about, we heard about Noah, right? God's going to judge the whole world. But guess what he does? He saves Noah and his family. That, that's supposed to be you and me. In Christ, we are, we are carried through the judgment of God. We are shielded from it. In verse 7, he continues with Lot's story. He says, if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as the righteous man lived among them in Sodom and Gomorrah, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Essentially, Lot's living in a community that had gotten so bad, so sinful, so toxic, that literally when the angels of God come into the town to assess the situation, the crowds of people actually started plotting to rape them. You know that's bad. Your community is dysfunctional. Okay? But Lot was living there with his family, trying to shield them from all this. And, and what we're going to see is God saves Lot and his family out of it. And then he goes on to say this, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. One of the things I love about the fact that he uses Noah and Lot as examples is because if you read their stories, which I encourage you to do, they were far from perfect. Because it doesn't say that God rescues perfect people, because otherwise we'd all be doomed. He rescues those who trust him and take him at his word. 
That's who he saves. Those who have faith in him. Those are the ones that he rescues from judgment. And it's through Christ and it's through faith in Christ that he does this. He goes on to say, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Verse 9, he continues and says, And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the, def- the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So, I think here, he's saying, God will judge, and he'll rescue the righteous, and he'll still judge those who misbehave, those who harm the church. I think he's talking about the false prophets, false teachers, again, those people with wrong motives. But he says uh, that those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise, who live however they want, who ignore the teachings of Christ, and who despise authority. So Peter's saying, listen, I know there's false teachers among you. God will judge them. God will judge them, just as he always has. And if you are righteous and have faith in Christ and do what is right, God will save you. This is the pattern. This is the pattern of all Scripture. He's reminding them of that. So here's a question that comes to mind for me as I'm reading the text. The question is this, why does God wait so long to judge and to save? Why? Why not today? Why not last week? Why does God wait so long to judge wicked people and to save the righteous? Right? Why? This is a great question. In fact, Peter's going to answer the question in chapter 3, so let's just jump ahead and read it. In chapter 3, verse 9, he's actually talking about why Jesus hasn't returned to make everything right yet. And he says this, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's like, this is a perspective thing, okay? We're like, God, when are you coming? When are you going to fix this? When are you going to uh, judge these evil people? And he says he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is instead patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter's answer to that question, why does God wait to judge? And why does he wait to save? Is that this time of waiting is an opportunity for us to get right with God. That in giving time, there's time for you and me to repent. There's time for us to share the gospel with our friends and even our enemies. That there's time. There's a window of time. It's like that. I had to, I had to hand in that assignment. There was a window of time. And God is giving us a nice long period of time for his work to be completed. And we need to understand that. And one of the other questions that arises for me as I'm reading the text is, Peter's talking all about false teachers and how bad they are and how dangerous. Stay away. Be alert. Be aware. Discern. And never once in the letter, if you've been reading it, you'll know, never once in the letter does he say, go on a witch hunt. Find false teachers in your church and kick them out. Correct everybody. He doesn't say to do that. It's not like... We could, we could do pastoral visits. We could send pastors over to your house. Check your movie collection. Check your internet browser history. Be like, oh, this person's a mess. You're out. It doesn't say to do that. It doesn't say like, oh, if somebody believes something, a wacky theology, you should find them and kick them out of the church. There are people who think we should do that, okay? But, but Peter doesn't do that. He talks about the evils and the dangers of false teaching. He talks about it. He talks about judgment. He talks about all these things. But at the end of the day, the emphasis throughout the text, the emphasis is constantly on you and how you respond and what you do. That's where the emphasis lies all through the text. He says things like this in chapter 3, verse 11. I don't have any slides. Just listen to these words. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, he doesn't say, What kind of people should they be? He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter's not like, hey, figure out what's wrong with them. He says, 
What kind of life should you lead? That's the question that he leads with. Verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people. He doesn't say carry away lawless people. He says make sure you are not carried away. Now, I say all this knowing, too, that the New Testament teaches church discipline. And so there are occasions where someone is doing something to harm the church and the leadership will step in and remove them or ask them to repent. All that stuff will happen. But in general, we don't want our church family going on a witch hunt. In general, each of us must be pursuing Christ to live in a godly life and not being quick to judge. The guiding principle is this throughout the New Testament and the Scriptures, I would say, is this. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Not judge everyone else's. Guard your heart. That you might be found faithful. Uh, there's, a, there's a parable I want to read to you. It's found in Matthew chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Uh, you can also make a note and read it on your own. So I'm going to read the parable and I'm going to give some of the explanation as we go. Because I think this parable is so helpful in understanding why God patiently allows good and evil to exist together. Okay? Uh, Matthew chapter 13, it's called the parable of the weeds. Okay? And uh, Jesus goes on later in the chapter to explain some of the things that I'm going to tell you. So you can, again, read that for yourself. We're not going to read the entire chapter today. He says this. He put a parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So Jesus goes on later to explain, the farmer who sowed good seed is God. And he sends his his good people, his children, into the world. And then the enemy who comes and sows weeds in the field is Satan. And he sows false teachers. He sows those who would cause problems and selfish and all that stuff. So so, So there's both kinds of people. You get it? There's a field. And now there's good, there's wheat, let's say, growing in the field, and there's weeds. And so the story goes on. It says, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. So eventually it became clear, okay, there's a whole bunch of weeds in this field, and we don't know how they got here. And it says, the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, and this is, I think, our natural tendency. Then do you want us to go and gather them? Why don't we go right now and yank all the weeds out of the field? Is that not what you would want to do? Notice the response of the master. This is is God. He says, he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together. He's going to allow the weeds and the wheat to grow side by side. And notice what he says next. He says, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, this is the day of judgment, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. So there is coming a moment and a day when God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, his people from those who are false. All of that will get sorted out. Let them grow together. And here's why. I think we have to be slow to judge one another for a lot of reasons. But the first is this. One of the reasons why we must be slow to judge is because the people we are judging, their story is not over yet. Can I tell you, your story is not over yet. If I were reading the first five or six chapters of the book of Acts, and I would read about Saul of Tarsus. How many know Saul of Tarsus, right? So he's, he is a vigilante for the Jewish faith. He is going from town to town, arresting, finding Christians, having them imprisoned, flogged, and sometimes even killed. 
And if I were a first century uh, Christian, I would be like, God, judge that guy. Get rid of him. The problem is his story wasn't over. And Saul, on the road to Damascus, is confronted with the reality of Jesus, and he becomes Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle who becomes a martyr for Christ. Paul the Apostle who writes a good portion of the New Testament. Paul the Apostle who becomes the second most influential person in history next to Jesus himself. You and I would have written him off. So we don't want to judge too soon. Right? This is why we're, we're slow to judge. Because the story is not over yet. Consequently, on the flip side, we think about uh, Judas Iscariot. We all know Judas' story. Judas was chosen of Jesus. He was in his inner circle. He was loved by Jesus. He went out with the disciples and preached just like the rest. He healed the sick just like the rest. He was the treasurer of Jesus Incorporated. He got to hold the money bag. But because he was greedy, he started to steal from it. And in the end, this one that was chosen and loved and would have, everyone would have thought he's one of the 12 and he's all of this, that in the end, his greed surfaces and he betrays Christ and commits suicide. Who would have called that? We all think we know because we've read the story, but we would have never guessed. And this is why we judge each other slowly because we don't know the end of the story. So I want to encourage you today, number one, not to write yourself off. But number two, not to write your family members off, not to write your spouse off, not to write the people you work off, not to judge too quickly because you don't know the end of the story. I'm guessing that many people in this room were a different person before they met Christ. And if someone had written you off, and maybe they did, and you know how that feels, the story would be very, very, very different. And so we don't want to judge too quickly. That's one reason, because the story is not over. Here's, here, let me give you another reason to judge slowly. And that's this. We judge slowly because false prophets, or what we perceive to be false prophets, dangerous people, are often babes in Christ. My wife and I, we had four, we've had four kids. They're getting into their adult years. But one of the things I noticed about babies, there's not much difference between a baby and a criminal. They steal. They make messes. They break stuff. They lie. They bite. Right? But I don't te- I don't, we don't treat a one-year-old like a criminal because we know that we have to give them grace to grow. We know that there's a process of helping them to understand that certain behaviors are not right, to help them to understand how they're impacting others, to understand that they're accountable before God, and over time we see their character develop. It's no different when someone comes to faith and they're unrefined, and they still have anger issues, they still have addiction issues, we all have issues, and you see all these issues, and maybe they're saying stuff that's not true, and you're like, false prophet, and they're just a confused infant in the Lord. They don't know better. And if we treat them like a false prophet, what are we doing? We're uprooting good wheat that is yet to, that is yet to become fruitful. So this is why, guys, we have to be slow to judge, slow to judge. I was going to read, I have a whole bunch of scriptures, all from the New Testament. It's like, judge not lest you be judged. And we're supposed to judge ourselves. And even within the church, there are certain things that we, we judge one another, we help each other, we call out sin. There's, there's a place for all that, but we have to be slow, slow, slow to judge. He even goes on to say that in the way that we judge others, we ourselves will be judged. So if you're going to err on judgment or mercy, I would say err on mercy. And God will be merciful to you. Because it's easy to be judgmental. It's easy to be. We love to be judgmental towards others, but we don't like anyone being judgmental to us. Oh, they don't see my heart. Well, you don't see theirs. 
You don't. So slow, slow to judge. This is wisdom. This is wisdom for you. Slow to judge. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes to look at the last two verses in our text today. And these are extremely, extremely odd verses. I'm going to do my best to explain them the best of my ability. Um, In verse 10 and 11, it says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is talking about the false prophets. They boldly, without even a worry, blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? No idea. Scholars argue the glorious ones, maybe he's talking about the apostles and their teaching. Or maybe the glorious ones are the prophets of old who, who, through which we've got the scriptures. But, but many scholars believe that the glorious ones are actually angelic beings, heavenly beings. You're like, really? Where do you get that? Well, in the very next verse, let's look at it. Okay, Verse 11 says, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power than humans, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Against who? Who are the angels? Who are they? So we're left kind of wondering what he's referring to. My thought is that the first century church knew exactly what he's referring to, and we don't. The closest thing I've been able to find is, um, if you read Second Peter, it actually parallels the themes of Jude, which is just a few, few, uh, few books over in your Bible. Jude is a single letter written by the younger brother of Jesus, right? His half-brother. And Jude writes about the same things, the end times, false prophets. And there's a reference in Jude. I think you can put it up on the screen. I'll just read it off the screen. There's a reference in Jude, verse 9, that says this. When the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Now, this story is nowhere else in the Bible. Okay? But it's interesting because Jude includes it. He says they're disputing. So imagine Michael, the archangel, like God's general, and Lucifer, a fallen general, are disputing over Moses' body at his death. It says this, that, that Michael the archangel did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Here's the idea. Michael the archangel, who had done right, and Lucifer, who, I, if there was anybody you could judge, it's probably Satan, right? Like that, like, it's, I think you're pretty safe to be like, you're in the wrong. Like, you are, you're Satan, you're in the wrong. But Michael the archangel would not even pronounce a judgment on Satan himself. He actually said, God will judge you. Giving us an example to be slow to judge, to remember that we ought not to be quickly judging one another because each of us will stand before God. And when I stand before God, I don't want to stand before God for all the things I did wrong and then all the bad judgments I placed on you. He's like, angels know better. We should too. And these false teachers were doing it willfully, and boldly. That's the best I can do. Does that make sense? So they're just trying to tie all these themes together. So let me share with you two passages of Scripture, and then we're going to close in prayer. Uh, the first one is found in Romans 14, verses 12 and 13. And again, this is Paul writing, same theme. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about the day of the Lord. We're going to talk about that moment where we stand before God. And He's like, each of us will give an account. One day, you and I will stand before God, and our kids won't stand beside us. Our spouse won't stand beside us. Our boss, the people who mistreated us won't. It'll be us and God. And books will be opened, and all will be revealed. It's terrifying. It's terrifying because that day of judgment is coming. But then he goes on to say, therefore, in light of all that, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Let's be slow, slow to judge, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
By the way, this is, this is one of the reasons why um, you will likely, I hope, never hear me criticizing other preachers from this pulpit. Not because I don't think other preachers get it wrong and sometimes they're selfish and sometimes they're teaching heresy. I'll say, hey, don't believe this doctrine. Here's what the Bible says. Don't fall into this trap. I'll warn people. I'll speak truth. But you won't hear me name dropping um, because I know one day I'll have to stand before God for every word that came out of my mouth. And I also know that anybody who has the opportunity to speak and teach others is actually held to an even higher standard before God. So I want to be the kind of place where we pursue Christ and we pursue truth and we're slow to judge and we allow those around us to grow in grace. It doesn't mean we let sin run rampant and we don't deal with anything. It's not what it means, but we're slow. And, and, and if we have to call someone out, we do it graciously. We do it cautiously, knowing that we ourselves are able to fall into those same traps. Let me read Hebrews 9, 27. I told you earlier, nobody has this as a life verse. Nobody has this tattooed on their body. It is appointed unto man once to die. After that comes the judgment. That's the scary part, friends. We will stand before God. Everything we've done, laid bare before him. It's terrifying. It's ter- I can think of things I've done. I'm like, oh, it's going to be all out in the open. But the next verse is so, this, is your, this should be your life verse. Verse 28, the one that follows says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, all of your sins and mine, all of the things we have done wrong, When we come to Christ and trust in Him, it's covered in His blood. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. So when we stand before God, we're not the unrighteous with judgment and flood and hailstone and brimstone coming down upon us. We are covered by Christ. and We are righteous, and so we are saved. We're like Noah in the ark, and the whole world is being destroyed, and we're being saved in Christ. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's coming, friends. Not to deal with your sin because your sin has been dealt with. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's the question I want to close with today. When Christ returns, will it be your day of judgment or your day of salvation? That's the question. And the answer to that question has everything to do with your relationship to Christ. If you're trusting in Jesus and what he's done... It's like in the Old Testament, in the Exodus story, when they put the blood on the lintel of the doorpost and the angel of death passed over and they were delivered because of the blood. When you and I trust in Christ and what he's done, our sins are forgiven. They're washed white as snow. And we're delivered from the coming judgment. And all of that should shape the way we live. That means that we don't just like, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. I can sin. Paul's very clear. Okay, it's not I sin because it's all wiped away, but rather because of what he's done, because of his grace and his mercy, because of his love, because of his salvation, I'm going to live in a new way. And I'm going to move in his direction and I'm going to judge slowly. He's going to save those who eagerly wait for him. So I would just say this in closing before I pray. Where are you at with Jesus? Where are you at with him? Are you trusting? Are you eagerly waiting for his return? Are you asking him to lead and guide your life? Are you seeking his truth each day in the word and changing your life to line up with what he has said? Because those are indications that you belong to him. So do that. And I want to encourage you today that if, if, if there are those in your life who are causing you problems, to just continue to pray for them, to continue to extend grace towards them. And ask yourself, what kind of life ought you to live? 
and godliness and holiness before God. And as you do that, trusting God to save and deliver you, remember their story is not over yet. Can I pray? Father, thank you for every person that's here listening to the sound of my voice. God, we acknowledge today that you are not just gracious and merciful, but you are a great judge and you are a holy God. And you will judge unrighteousness. And God, we pray knowing that we are unrighteous in ourselves. And we thank you for the provision you've made through your son. We thank you that we can be called sons and daughters of God, that we can be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because of what you've done. Help us to live out of that grace. Help us to live changed lives like Paul the Apostle because we've met Jesus and we've received grace. Thank you for covering our sins. If there's anyone in this place, Lord, who's never trusted in you, I pray that they would do so today, just calling out on your name and saying, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I trust in you for my future now and into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that's it from us. Thank you so much for tuning in. For any more information you need, feel free to reach out to us on any of our socials at Pathway Church PTBO. That's it. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.